0: Y'all get it half
1: price.
0: Daddy, Daddy, what are we gonna do today?
2: At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon?
0: Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for T-tons of comedy.
2: That—that's titans of comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages like beer, wine, and sangria—all the things I drink to forget your mother. Anywho,
0: west of freezers.
2: reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking public schools.
3: In a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy, laughter has value, and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that? Live.com comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy? And those that, <laughs> who is that? go to whoisthatlive.com for upcoming shows.
1: Join us on a journey into the absurd. <laughs> <laughs> Radio Havana, <laughs> 1109 <laughs> Valencia. At
4: Twenty-second
5: Wednesday in San Francisco. The Watered Act Improv Comedy
6: Music live
1: every Wednesday from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Outside and free. Comedians, poets, and special guests welcome.
7: That song is called Acid and Fapping. San Francisco Mutiny
8: Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you
9: can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny
1: Radio. San Francisco.
3: T G I F at OMG. Bird Fridays of every month at 7:30. Come to OMG on Savory Sixth Street for DGIF. Thank God it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG, check us out. Free shows, great drink specials, hilarious comics every Friday. San Francisco, gouging you. Here we go. Free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month. OMG, 6th Street. Come on out with your friends. Mutiny Radio, CGIF at OMG.
11: Open your eyes, let it be.
12: I'm tired of moon songs, of star and of June songs. They simply make me nap. And ditties romantic drive me nearly frantic. I think they're all full of pap. History's making, nations are quaking. Why sing of stars above? For while we are waiting, father time's creating new things to be singing. significance all other tunes are taboo I want a ditty with heat in it appealing with feeling and meat in it sing me a song with social significance or you can sing till you're blue let meaning shine from every line of wars and sing me of bread lines. Tell me of front page news. Sing me of strikes and last minute headlines. Dress your observation in syncopation. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must get hot with what is what or I won't love you. a song that's satirical putting the mirror into miracle it must be packed with social fact or i won't And conferences marshal, tell me of mills and mines. Sing me of courts that aren't impartial. What's to be done with them? Tell me in rhythm. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must be tense with common sense or I.
13: They say everything can be replaced
14: And uh, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Labor and Love, your one stop labor magazine, labor history, labor news, labor commentary, labor opinion, all by, for, and about the working people of this, country, of this world. Let's put it that way. Now we open up the show, then the name of the show, by the way, is Labor and Love, and every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., come into your home with our mix of uh, labor stuff. Started out today with Nina Simone's I Shall Be Released, Bob Dylan's song about Of release. Physical prison, or is it a psychic prison, or is it a psychological prison? And sing me a song with social significance. Rosemary June from the <coughs> musical Pins and Needles actually created and produced. Union was presented in the nineteen fifties and it's had a couple of (coughs) resurgent performances since then. Then we had the great news with high shield well Antenna. Everything's coming our way, and we gotta hold that, hold fast. As progressive people, we want more unity. This is the B, and I'm coming at you from Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, corner of Florida and 21st. Come on down to Mutiny and find your voice. We need you, and you need us. Okay, what do we got on the show for you today? have a couple of features about organizing at Starbucks. One of them from Radio Labor, about how Starbucks organizing was first conceived and carried out. And then some local stuff, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that is, um, how Starbucks, how the NL- NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, has reinstated, ordered the reinstatement of four Pittsburgh Starbucks baristas fired for union organizing. So we'll get into that right away. The, the, rate of organizing at Starbucks has slowed down considerably because companies like Starbucks have gone all out to combat advertising, uh, unionizing in their stores. It's the last thing in the world they want. The last thing in the world that most employers want is a union. Now, why is that? Okay, what do we got for you? We've got Al Jazeera's story on US cracking down on child labor violations. How many times have you heard in histories of the labor movement and of United States in general that child labor has been wiped out? Utah Phillips has a quote where he says, we organized and we wiped out child labor. Sorry. We haven't wiped out child labor. Back, and why? Why is it back? Is that an easy one or a hard one? How about LGBTQ workers organizing to fight the right? A crackdown at the University of California for what? Are painting slogans like raise wages? Check that one out too. 6,000 machinists strike against air parts giant in Kansas, threatening Boeing production. It's happening now. Black lung? What is black lung anyway? And why is it a labor issue? For generation. Died of this disease, black lung. We'll bring you part two of our special three-part presentation of The Wobblies. And then something about The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a book that I've started, I picked up and started reading again. And the commentary in the Sierra Treasure of Sierra Madre about the value, labor theory of value. What is it and how does it function? And we were going to have labor history in two. What happened in labor history around this time? Machinists walk out on the airlines, fighting privatization in Puerto Rico, on and on. Remember, you're never alone as long as you are rising up. Okay, so let's start with Radio Labor's story about how Starbucks was first organized, and then we'll get on to what's happening recently.
8: This is a Radio Labor Report recorded on Thursday, June 15th, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger.
15: On December 9th, 2021, we won the first Starbucks union in the US at my store.
8: That is Michelle Eisen. She was speaking at the 2023 Congress of the International Union of Food Workers. The IUF has 12 million members in countries all around the world. It is holding its Congress in Geneva, Switzerland, June 13th to 16th, 2023.
15: I started with Starbucks in 2010. I'm a production stage manager in the theater industry and I needed a flexible day job that would provide me with health benefits. Enter Starbucks a self-proclaimed progressive company that stated that they cared about the environment, the community, and their workers, or partners, as they referred to them. And for a time after I was hired, I really believed that to be the case. Fast forward to June of 2021. I, like hundreds of thousands of service workers in the U.S., worked through the bulk of the COVID pandemic in customer-facing positions, putting ourselves and our families at risk daily. And in almost all cases, the companies that we worked for completely failed us. We were called essential, but we were treated as disposable. And I was done. I didn't know where I was going, but I knew I could not continue to work for a company that so blatantly undervalued its partners. At most, I had a few months left in me. Right before I was planning to leave, I received a text from one of my fellow workers. She asked if we could meet for a coffee after one of our shifts that week, which I thought was odd because we literally serve coffee all day. But I agreed, and it was at that meeting that she asked me what I thought about the possibility of Starbucks unionizing. To which I replied I'd never thought about it. I didn't know much about organized labor, but I did know that it included very little of the service industry and even less of the fast food service industry. But in spite of that, I asked her to tell me everything she could. When I was done, I calmly explained that while I was interested, I didn't know that I would have a lot of time to commit. After all, the theater industry was opening back up post-pandemic, and I was going to be very busy with production work. But I certainly had no intention of standing in their way. Then about a week after we filed our union petition, I was called into my first anti-union meeting with corporate. We sat in a circle at a hotel conference room and listened to Ross Ann Williams, the then president of Starbucks North America, tell us that we were all partners and that the company had already given us so much and at the same time she was threatening us. And I saw the looks on the faces of my coworkers as we were being bullied and manipulated into voting against our best interests. And that's the moment I realized that I could not take a passive role in this fight that not actively working against my fellow workers was not the same as standing with them. They concluded the meeting by saying they were just giving us the facts, and that if we wanted more information about the union, we should contact a union rep. So I raised my hand and I said, I'm one of the partner organizers, and I'd be happy to answer any questions any of you may have. And there was no turning back from there. On December 9, 2021, we won the first Starbucks union in the U.S. at my store. Since then, our campaign has grown into a movement. As of today, we have over 320 unionized locations across the U.S., encompassing about 8,000 newly organized workers, with more joining every day. I've been told many times that our campaign is different. That it is unlike organizing campaigns of the past. And while that's true in some ways, it's more accurate to say that what Starbucks workers are doing is an extension of what many worker organizers throughout labor history have already done. We've been able to harness social media and video platforms to talk with workers across the country and globe, and these have been invaluable tools. But the most important lesson of our success is that the basic elements of organizing are the same as they were 100 years ago. Our movement is rooted in the the ability to connect with one another on a human level through the interests we share in our workplaces and industries. Using those techniques refined from previous organizing efforts, we have created a campaign that is largely worker-led. We refer to them as partner organizers. That means workers from organized stores connecting and helping workers organize at other stores. We also play large roles in other aspects of the campaign, such as communications, broader strategy questions, and media. I mentioned earlier how little I knew about organized labor before my involvement with this campaign, but that I knew it included very little of the fast food service industry. In large part, that was because it's an industry that has been long thought to be unorganizable for a multitude of reasons, some of the most apparent being the average age of the workforce, very young, and the notoriously high turnover rate both of which can seem like a deterrent to unions hoping to organize these workers. But I'd like to take this opportunity to remind people that there have been other industries in history that also fit this description and were also once thought to be a lost cause, but are now highly organized, meatpacking and home care industries being just two examples. Like many low-wage industries, there is a pervasive way of thinking that has been drilled into most food service workers that the jobs are unskilled, that we don't deserve fair wages and safe working conditions, that being disrespected regularly is just part of the job. And if we don't like it, we can work somewhere else. Anybody who has ever spent a day on the floor in one of these cafes can tell you that these jobs are far from unskilled. Our labor is valuable. It brings in billions of dollars a year for Starbucks. And without our labor, the business would simply cease to exist. And the same can be said for every large corporation that makes up this industry. I hope that this movement is a small step in changing that way of thinking. Despite this overwhelmingly negative response from Starbucks and companies like them, we have found ourselves at the forefront of a new labor movement. Workers recognize their power and are choosing to stand together to demand change, not only for themselves and the situation at present but for future workers in their industry. This generation of workers is looking to solve workplace issues for the long term. We want our industry to be a career for those who choose that, not just a stop along the way. By fixing the workplace issues that lead to high turnover and allowing for worker retention, we can truly create an environment where a democratic workplace can thrive, leading to a strong, lasting union. But it takes a lot of support to organize an industry like ours, and a lot of unions would consider our campaign too big a risk to take on. Fortunately for us, Workers United and SEIU have been willing to take on that challenge in the US. Our hope now is to expand this beyond the borders of our country and truly make this a global movement. Starbucks is a multinational corporation, and it is safe to say that the poor treatment of their workers is consistent across the world. And Starbucks is just one company that fits this description. There are many, many more just like them. The workers in my industry are ready to take on this challenge. Are you ready to support them? I'm often asked what it will take to win this fight. And to me, the answer is simple, at least in theory. We continue to organize. We continue to support our fellow workers. We stand together to condemn Starbucks' anti-union behavior, and we ask the public and all of you to do the same. Because we're not only fighting corporate, but also the public brand of Starbucks. If Starbucks truly were the progressive company it professes to be, it would recognize our right to organize and be a leader in the industry, both in the US and abroad. And I have a lot of hope that we will get there. But until then, we will continue to stand together, and we will continue to fight together.
14: National Labor Relations Board has recently sent down a a ruling uh, based on a Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania Starbucks. This is on the Trib Live, a local Pittsburgh paper. Starbucks illegally fired four baristas in Pittsburgh who supported unionization, according to an NLRB labor... Relations Board decision that ordered their reinstatement. In a June 30th ruling, NLRB administrative law judge Robert Ringler found that Starbucks management has repeatedly engaged in anti-union activity at four of the company's Pittsburgh locations. Former Market Square employees Tom Tori Tombolini and Kimberly Manfrey were reinstated, as well as Penn Center East employees Brett Tapparelli and James Green. Starbuck has been ordered to cease and desist its serious and widespread unfair labor practices, including implied surveillance of union activities, threats to fire pro-union ac- employees. An unequal treatment and enforcement of intangent attendance and dress code policies. These are the things that companies use to get rid of people that they don't want working there. They don't say, oh, well, you're organizing for the union. We want you out of here. They say, well, uh, you haven't been really, you know, getting here on time or... or Your attendance isn't good. Um, 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 We've been watching what you're doing, and you're wasting a lot of time. Um, And your dress isn't up to dress code. Starbucks trains managers that no partner will be disciplined for engaging in lawful union activity and that there will be no tolerance for any unlawful anti-union behavior. This is a Starbucks spokesman ad, uh, talking. New petitions for representation at Starbucks locations have slowed substantially since mid-2022 as claims of union-busting surfaced and bargaining efforts made little headway. Tom Bellini hopes the decision will hope reverse that trend. Okay, so the unions versus Starbucks. Okay, and Starbucks, of course, has all these implied laws and practices on its side. Have to keep track of I wanted to play another radio labor clip. This one is about AI, and this is something that we all better get ready for. AI, of course, is artificial intelligence, and it's at the center of a writer's strike. Right now, this moment, we'll get on to that in a minute, but right now, this is Daniel Bertosa, General Secretary of the Public Services International Union. Developments in machine learning and computer algorithms may be about to radically change many workplaces. Employers need to share control with workers. Will they do that?
1: Radio Labour.
14: Don't hold your breath. Hello,
8: I'm Mark Berlada. For years, artificial intelligence has been touted as a job-destroying, politically problematic technology, but without any real advances. That may be about to change radically with new developments in machine learning and computer algorithms. Recently, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, based in California, conducted a webinar on the subject. One of the featured speakers was Daniel Bertosa, the Assistant General Secretary of Public Services International. The PSI represents some 30 million public sector workers in 154 countries. Mr. Bertosa.
16: If you look at the history of capital and labor relations, especially since industrialization, It's essentially one of power between capital uh, and labour, and the employer controlled the capital, uh, and particularly where there was unemployment, a reserve pool of labour, that gave capital quite a lot of power in terms of their negotiating that contract, uh, either a direct legal contract or a social contract um, with labour. One of the things that labour has had, and particularly skilled labour has had since industrialisation, is quite a detailed understanding of the production process and it's often being better than the boss. So even if the boss owns a printing press or a machine, and even if the boss can find a worker at some point to run it if you if you withdraw your labour, your ability to understand how that machine runs and what that machine does and how it relates to other machines and other parts of the production process is actually a piece of, of valuable information that's captured by, by workers. And what it means is that Strikes worked essentially. You know, withdrawing your labor was a tool that you had as a worker that enabled you to deploy, at least to threaten to deploy uh, when you're trying to balance up that uh, relationship of power. And these days, we we don't see as many strikes, but the idea of the problems of retention of skilled labor or quiet quitting, however you want to look at it, at least in the short term, uh, labor had um, some specialized knowledge about the process of production that was valuable and difficult to replaced but with machine learning and algorithmic decision making this is shifting and we're seeing it for the first time amongst uh, very skilled work there are these groups of workers that no longer know more about the production process than anyone else and sometimes the boss themselves doesn't know much about the production process either sometimes there's a third party that understands the production process because they understand the algorithm better than anybody else and this represents quite a fundamental shift in power between labor capital relations I don't think it's absolute, but I do think it's significant. And I think it sits underneath a lot of the shifts that we're seeing. And it means a couple of things. It means workers need to be concerned and focused a lot more about understanding and monitoring the changes, not in the in the general sense, but as they impact and are applied to the production process in, in a worker's workplace or sector. But that is becoming much, much more important. And the second thing that's quite important is that they need to be involved in implementing the the co-management of these systems, these algorithmic systems and machine learning before the change is introduced. Because unlike in the past, once the change is introduced, it's very, very difficult to claw that back. I also think, and, and this is partly because I work for the Global Union Federation that represents public service workers, we need a much better understanding about the public good nature of data. Too many of the stories that are being told is about data as being gold or, or oil, something that you sort of you can dig up, and and it makes sense because it is essentially extractive the the what's going on with modern capitalism. But unfortunately, treating data like a, an old-fashioned commodity misses some of the perhaps the more important and subtle elements, it, it, because it's it's a, it's often a networked commodity. Or it's a commodity that has traditional monopoly or public good values. So we think we need to think about it much more like a power network or a water network, as opposed to you know a lump of coal. And when it comes to governments and government workers, this is really important because governments are traditionally uh, tasked with keeping a bunch, a, a whole lot of data, and we trust governments without without that, or We we don't, but we. We we need to for some for some purposes, and we and we focus the fact that government will have this data, and we need to, to keep hold them to account. And government needs this data to do some very basic governing. And increasingly, government no longer owns the the data that it needs to do governing, or that it needs to do democracy. So whether it's really basic stuff like controlling traffic in a city, which is a which is a basic uh, city management task, if Google Maps owns all that data, then cities are reliant on private corporations to do its basic governing school test results were another area that are being increasingly commodified and if it's government's job to educate its citizenry and if that has a public good nature then we've got to grapple with the, the very real issues of what happens when private corporations own this data and they own it in a way that's valuable only at an aggregate level and not at a specific level and then the last point in, in there is that work Workers are increasingly created, well, they create this data, but there's individual data points. And this data is not that valuable as an individual data point. It's only valuable when it's collectively owned. And what worries me is that the corporations in particular are capturing these large sets of data, uh, and it's going to be very, very hard to to claw that back after the fact. Because once that data has been commercialised and property rights have been allocated to it and it has a value, the politics of the situation mean it's very, very hard to regulate that after the fact. And I think just quickly, there's a couple of very quick uh, implications of this. One is the productivity gains that we're seeing aren't able to be captured by workers. And that's driving inequality, both within the workforce, but across countries, depending on, you know, who owns the companies that own the data. Uh, and I think that leads us to who sets the rules. And we're seeing increasingly trade agreements dealing with property rights in data and the regulation of data. And these trade agreements, essentially what they do is stop governments from regulating certain things. And so what that's doing is it's stopping the ability of workers and governments from introducing the regulation into these important areas of life before we realise that we need to regulate them. And because these treaties are binding, they're very hard to get out of because there's a lot less debate about trade negotiations as opposed to perhaps a national legislative proposal. A lot of the debate about the implications is going on before the average worker realises that they've lost something. And so I think all of these areas from a worker's perspective are absolutely critical before you can even get into some of the sort of daily issues that workers raise about the the fact the boss has has bought a piece of proprietary software that now tracks them, Uh, sitting behind that are all these broader political economy issues that if they're not grappled with institutionally and collectively, workers and their unions won't have any chance to actually try to, to claw back some of that power in the workplace because the tools and the institutions they need just won't be there.
14: Okay, now what's the latest that's happening? Um, Daniel Bertosa is telling us about the issues that are coming up, which is ownership of data, ownership of awareness, and the means of production, which become AI. What's going to happen to working people once... don't need you anymore like the writers in Hollywood let's see how the writers in Hollywood are it's on CNBC and it says how AI took center stage in the Hollywood writers strike
7: This isn't the first time a major writer's strike has put Hollywood on the brink of a full production shutdown. But this could be the first one in which artificial intelligence plays a big role.
4: There are various tools that are trying to push the boundaries of what is possible. Whether it's the third, fourth, fifth generation, it's going to be very soon until we can literally just type in a prompt and and see something as a consumer. And you don't have to have um, any sort of skills as a visual effects artist or as uh, someone in the entertainment industry.
7: Here's why the generative potential of AI has emerged as a key issue in this year's writer's strike. The life force behind your favorite Hollywood production may be fueled by upwards of 58 different entertainment guilds and unions. These unions operate in tandem with one massive trade association, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, which represents all major studios and streaming platforms. To stay on pace with the ever-changing media landscape, the Studio Alliance and the Hollywood Unions convene once every three years to establish minimum basic agreements. Past negotiations have tackled pension programs, health funds, residual payments, and minimum wage agreements. Of the many topics under consideration in this year's contract negotiations, one nascent technology has entered the conversation for the first time, artificial intelligence.
17: I hope I'm wrong, but I do think that the use of AI is going to take over the entertainment industry. And I think it's going to be really bad.
7: The last WGA strike in 2007 lasted 100 days and cost California's economy approximately $2.1 billion in revenue.
17: When I was on the negotiating committee of Screen Actors Guild around 0708, we were trying to get residuals for made for new media. That's what streaming was called then. The studio said, well, it's so new. We don't know if we're even going to make money on the Internet. I mean, it's so untried, so unproven. And I said to the rest of the committee, like, we better get some real estate in here because this is just another way to distribute things.
7: After 14 months on the picket line, WGA writers ratified a deal that granted the union jurisdiction over new media and codified a system for creators to receive royalty payments from streamed content. The hard-fought win laid a foundation for residual compensation before streaming took over as a leader in content distribution. Widespread consumer adoption of streaming has made it the new standard for entertainment, but businesses operating in the space are struggling to achieve profitability.
18: Today, the only one we know of that is cash flow positive is Netflix. They've estimated there'll be about $3.5 billion of free cash flow this year. Every other company out there, if you think about it, are losing money. Disney, Warner Bros. Discovery, losing billions and billions and billions of dollars a year. And then you also have to scale this. It's not enough to have a couple million subscribers. It took Netflix getting to about 200 million subscribers before they got cash flow positive. The platforms are trying to figure out what works best from their bottom line.
7: In the face of weak revenues, streaming companies have been issuing layoffs, bundling services, and removing content from their platforms. While content removal helps curtail balance sheet losses, the action cuts off content creators from receiving residual profits. Often without any formal notification.
18: Streaming platforms that are creating their own content and their own originals are constantly changing the way they license content. They've jumped from service to service to service in new licensing deals. Some of those deals are, are one year long, some of them are multi years. Every time a content deal is done with a streaming platform or distribution, it has a direct impact on, on those that created the content distributors, producers, writers, actors, because they're getting royalties based on that. So they don't like that some content is being removed from streaming platforms because now they're not getting compensated for that anymore.
7: The advent of streaming has granted audiences unprecedented access to massive libraries of on-demand content, a modern luxury that could dampen how viewers feel the effects of a strike. Last time
17: the Writers Guild struck was in 2007, 2008. And everybody really felt it the audience felt it the studios felt it because if there wasn't new material being made there was nothing there was no streaming there was broadcast television there was cable television and there were movies now there's a strike and there are streaming sites where you can watch an almost unlimited amount of material while we're on strike so just in that way you can see how striking now has possibly less impact than when we struck in 07 and 08.
7: With content generation imperative to the success of both writers and studios, the advent of AI has thrown an unforeseen wrench into contract negotiations. Rather than an outright ban, the WGA has proposed guardrails for AI technology that aim to protect the working standards, payment systems and authorship credit for writers. As for the studios, their statement on AI acknowledges ambiguity around the emerging technology and proposes annual discussions before landing on an official regulatory agreement. The Alliance's unwillingness to outline strict policies around generative AI tools has led to a stalemate. As the WGA takes to the picket line, other entertainment unions have begun their own contract negotiations with the Alliance the Directors Guild of America struck a contract agreement with the studios. On the topic of AI, both parties agreed that AI is not a person and that generative AI cannot replace the duties performed by members. Alliance negotiations with the Screen Actors Guild are underway. Ahead of contract negotiations with the Alliance, the Screen Actors Guild voted in favor of a strike, a proactive step in hopes of bringing more leverage to the bargaining table. They maintain that using AI to replicate an actor's voice or likeness requires the performer's consent and compensation.
4: Really, I think the place that we are going to as a society is prompt to entertainment. Literally being able to type in, I want to see an action movie and I want it to be funny and I want it to take place in Texas, go. And it spits out uh, a movie.
7: This is Caleb Ward. He's the founder of Curious Refuge, a production hub and learning portal for AI filmmakers. Curious Refuge's viral videos have given millions of viewers a brief glimpse of what an AI film future may look like. AI generates content through a digestive process. The model takes in pre existing content, both copyright protected and public domain. From this, it produces an amalgamation of information. The output looks new, but comes from existing media and sources.
4: These tools are now teaching themselves based on those iterations and uh, generating its own reference points. Now we're seeing works that um, you would never know what the inspiration source was, um, and it. it seemingly is something that's uh, coming from thin air, but it's being pulled from, you know, a million different resources and not just one. Writers will be able to show what the final product will look like uh, in the writer's room. That has never been possible before. In the grand tapestry of fate, I'm less of a golden thread and more of a knot. And so I think writers now are gonna have more power than ever before to direct these creative projects.
7: AI enthusiasts like Caleb see the technology as an equalizer that enables individuals with no experience in the entertainment industry to produce cinematic worlds.
4: Creative tools like this have have always evolved how we tell stories and I think that this is just a a time of transition for us and so we're all going to learn how to use these tools soon.
17: I think the idea that AI would democratize entertainment is absolutely ridiculous. What that's really saying is that the unskilled and the untalented would be able to pretend that they are skilled and talented.
7: As the Alliance and the unions hash out disputes over artificial intelligence, a budding faction of AI filmmakers continues to take shape.
18: AI is a hot topic right now, pretty much any industry out there. When it comes to video, You do have some people that are saying that they think it's going to replace writers or directors or production, -production, pre-production, post-production. So does anybody out there know what the impact of AI is gonna be yet? No, it's far too early. I look back in the days of when YouTube first started, And there was this idea that because YouTube is this open platform and anyone can create videos, that users themselves would replace studios out there creating all their own content because it was free to upload, it was free to stream. But the reality is we're all looking for the best content. 80% of your traffic comes from 20% of your content, but with video it's storytelling. And I believe you have to have a human to really tell that story.
14: Okay, well, that's what we are skinny on AI at this point. And it has become a big issue in the writers. You can see writers freaking out because AI threatens to replace them. One union already signed uh, a contract that says AI is not a person. Whoa, when was that ever, did that ever become a question? AI a person? I think that's what we've got to think about. There are people who will use AI for their own purposes and one of the purposes is to make AI the boss of everything, the motivating factor and the, the determinant of the future, making AI the ruler over everyone. Who's to say that AI one day won't demand to be a person? Right now it's a mind. It's a mind, it's like a treasure trove for people who want to go in and search for whatever reason, for knowledge and awareness that they can combine to make new quote-unquote Material. Okay, so let's keep an eye on that. AI started with Starbucks, moved on to AI, and now let's have some music. West Texas in my.
10: Lately I've been thinking that I could leave this town. Cut back on my drinking, stop this running round. Playing songs till after midnight, staying up till dawn. There's something in the dust and wind that keeps me hanging on And I never thought I'd live to see the day I'd say goodbye I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eye I'll be your blue-eyed bandit if you'll be my renegade Count a thousand tumbleweeds roll by me every day I'd like to grow a rose and stow it in that desert state Like a message in a bottle floating down the open plains Where the auto estacado rises up to meet the sky I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eyes. seen the thunderheads descend and rip into the ground, the twisted hand of heaven spreading terror all around, sending farmers into deeper debt and ranchers to the grave, where towers mark the end of time with slowly spinning blades, till the water table falls below the reach of humankind. I ain't crying. That's West Texas in my eye. Twisted hand of heaven spreading terror all around Sending farmers into deeper debt and ranchers to the grave Where towers mark the end of time with slowly spinning blades Till the water table falls below the reach of humankind I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eyes. thinking i could leave this town cut back on my drinking and stop this running around playing songs till after midnight and staying up till dawn but there's something in the dust and wind that keeps me hanging on and i never thought i'd live to see the day i said goodbye i ain't crying that's west texas in my eye i ain't crying that's west texas in
1: my eye
19: all went to the university where they were put in boxes and they came out all the same and there's doctors and lawyers and business executives and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same and they all play on the golf course and drink their martinis dry and they all And the children go to school and the children go to summer camp And then to the university where they are put in boxes And they come out all the same And the boys go into business and marry and raise a family In boxes made of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same There's a pink one, and a green one, and a blue one, and a yellow one. And they're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same.
5: Big man, there goes Mac the knife. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. The shark has pretty teeth, dear, and he shows them a oily white. Just a jackknife has mag Heat, dear, and he keeps it out of sight. When the shark bites with his teeth, dear, scarlet billows. Start the spring Fancy gloves though Where's heat dear So there's not a trace mm, Of red On the sidewalk Sunday morning even, Lies a body Oozing light Someone sneaking Around the corner Someone, Mac the Knife, from a tugboat by the river. A cement bag's drooping down. Yes, the cement's just for the weight deal. Bet you, Mac, he's back in town. Look a year, Louis Miller. Disappeared dear after drawing out his case and Mac heat spends like a sailor. Did our boy do something red? Suki Tawdry, Jenny Diver, Lottie Lanyard, sweet Lucy Brown. All oh, the line forms on the right,
14: dear yes.
5: now that Mackie's back in town, take it, Satch. <laughs> Much more than I never knew, and I think to myself.
14: That set was a little bit longer than normal because I wanted to put in two hits by the great, the great, it was armed We started out with uh, West Texas in my eye. Had uh, Alvina Reynolds, a local person, singing her. T- Classic little boxes talking about the homes up in Daily City, as well as other homes all around the place. Just the whole idea of lives that are programmed. Right now, I want to talk about one of our local sponsors, a place called San Jalisco. And we're getting some feedback. Como México no hay dos. Take a chance on me, Is bleeding through here. We don't need that right now. Como México no hay dos, which is a a saying, there's no place like Mexico. Y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite, enchiladas? Tacos, chilaquiles, the ultimate in birria, the best salsa and chips in town brought to you before you order. How about your favorite vegetarian omelets, burritos, and tacos? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Okay, I second that motion. Go on down to San Jalisco. Tell the people there that Labor and Love sent you. Okay, so we're um, into our second our second uh, hour here. Take a little break. Eric Jazz record. All right, let's get on now with our show. We've got uh, habituation talking about black lung, and we've got Wobbly. the wobblies first. Strongest, most effective labor union in American history, so strong that it had to be Wobblies get their name. The uh, industrial workers of the world, IWW, was hard for some people to pronounce. Remember, this was in that welcomed everybody. I white, Asian, everybody. A working person. I had to join the Wobblies. and get them on.
20: Tresca, Elizabeth Gurley-Flynn, Patrick Quilman, they were beautiful people. They were so wonderful. They gave us hope. You know, they just made us feel as though we were going to change the world. And Gurley-Flynn, she was beautiful. And once she held a meeting for us, all girls, all women, and she said, would you like to have soft hands like your bosses' boys? We said, yes. Would you like to have pretty dresses like your boss's daughters? Yes, but you can't have them. So we got mad again. We didn't think that was fair. We worked, and their daughters didn't work.
12: There are women of many descriptions in this queer world as everyone.
14: Story here with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn About 1912
12: strikes. Blooded queens and princesses who have charms made of diamonds and pearls. But the only and thoroughbred lady is the
20: rebel girl. They used to say that we deserved a better life. And in fact, they used to say, "All the workers have a beautiful place." That's the way they used to tell us. You know, we used to be there listening. They, we have music, good food, beautiful companionships, and we we went for it. Who wouldn't? No. I was always on the picket line <laughs> every day, every single day. But then the cops would come. And then they would start chasing us, swinging their clubs. They didn't care who they hit. Imagine our horseback to come after us. You had no chance. Not a lot of strike, they had a
21: lot of crack heads. Not a striker. But anyway, we give and thick. The
22: cops tried to hit us, then we hit them back.
20: The strikers that they used to pick up every day was comical in a way. Picking them up, bring them to the jail. In fact, once I was arrested, the judge was sitting up there. And we had one cop on each side of us. And uh, this cop, one cop said, you know what she called me? A GD snake. I looked up the judge and I said, your honor, I don't use that kind of language. So he looked down at him. He said, case dismissed. And see that you understand right the next time. See that you understand right from now on. The week after, the other cop tried to date me out. Hmm. That's really true. What did you say to him? I said, I'm sorry, but I don't go out with cops. (laughs) (laughs) Once we were striking in front of Weidman's, they started shooting. One man was on his porch holding his baby, he was shot. Had five children. Oh gosh, what a big funeral that man had. Everybody crying. Was we never expected things like that. To be killed. Shoot never.
21: strike and poverty because, don't forget, it was five months.
20: We were asking for less hours and more pay. But we lost the strike. What happened to the IWW after the strike? I don't know what happened anymore. I don't know. I never heard anything anymore. That hurt me because I thought for sure they would take over to be our union people.
6: That's what I was looking forward to. In the West, too, the IWW spread perhaps even more conspicuously than it had in the East. One of the tactics that they used was to appear on soapboxes everywhere, all over the country, in city after city, and make speeches about the advantages of their union. They used the soapboxes as a recruiting station, and they attracted a, a lot of attention, especially from the police. And ordinances were passed to make it unlawful to hold street meetings, except for the Salvation Army, which is a religious organization, was exempted. This contest between the Salvation Army and the IWW for street callers inspired one of the IWW members, Joe Hill, to write a uh, verse called The
22: Preacher of the Slave. Joe brought it in and uh, turned it over to the secretary, the Portland uh, local of the I.W.W., and he got out a leaflet on it. And long-haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when asked how about something to eat, they will answer with voices so sweet. You will eat by and by, In that glorious land above the sky, Way up high, work and pray, Live on hay, You'll get pie in the sky when you die. And the starvation army, they play, And they sing, and they clap, and they pray, till they get all your coin on the drum. But they'll tell you when you're on the bum. You will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky, way up high, work and pray, live on hay. You'll get high in the sky when you die. The speaker
23: would get up and start speaking, I st- start singing, and the cops would grab him. Another one would jump up, and the cops would grab him. Uh, still, they kept on coming. It was an endless stream.
24: I got up to speak uh, fellow workers, and uh, was immediately pulled down by uniformed policemen, and uh, I was charged with vagrancy, and zip. Before I knew it, uh, I was
6: sentenced to 90 days in the workhouse. What these fellows did when they were denied the rights was to fill the jails full of speakers, one after the other, arrested, so that it became embarrassing for the authorities to hold them. cost too much to keep them, and get so full after a while that it was impossible to hold them. So finally these ordinances were repealed. The IWW really contributed greatly
22: to the free speech fight in the United States. Men of all countries unite. Side by side, we for freedom will fight. When this world and its wealth we have gained. To the drafters, we'll sing this refrain.
6: You will eat One of the free speech fights in uh, Everett, Washington, was one of the most brutally suppressed of all of them.
21: Well, it was really rough in Everett, didn't it? There was no when we first started there never to you know there was there was no law against speaking on the street they let the Salvation Army and others uh, everybody except up speak in a corner of the street you know remember this was horse and buggy days and people walked downtown or took the streetcar downtown walked around there wasn't so there was no tra- we didn't block any streets or anything but we're speaking there and Sheriff McCray when he and his deputies, they uh, come down the street and beat us up, of course.
23: They. It was decided by the Free Speech Committee that we would go in still larger numbers. That the next time we went to Everett would be in daylight, and that we would uh, advertise the meeting ahead of time. So we went. How many there were on the boat, I have no way of knowing. It was a regular passenger run.
21: We knew they were coming, of course. It, it was advertised a couple of days before. It happened oh, All handbills all over town, and anyhow, it was on a Sunday morning.
23: The boat was loaded to a capacity until they were as much uh, to the last man that the boat was uh, allowed to carry as passengers. So we went to Everett. Oh, how we sang. We sang on the way to Everett. Always oh, singing, the IWW, wherever the congregated, no matter what, whatever faced. They were always songs. But among them, I think the one that we sang most often was either Hold the Fort or Solidarity. Those songs, they were sung Hold the Fort, for we are coming. Union men be strong. Side by side we battle onward. Victory
22: will come.
21: We knew they were coming I'm going to watch it for him. Me and another fellow walked down there and uh, tried to get on the dock. There they had a rope stretched across the street, which was against the law, too, of course. But that's uh, big business for you. They do any damn thing they want to. And uh, the man that was unguarded that rope, I knew him right well. I knew him well. He was superintendent of a Ferry Baker sawmill, rifle over his shoulders. When we saw that, we knew there was going to be trouble, because he had a
23: gun on his shoulder. We knew darn well there was going to be something. First was Don McGray. I remember him standing there, one hand in the air, one hand near the of his pistol. And he called out, who's your leader? Someone answered, we're all leaders. He says, you can't land here. Someone from the boat said, the hell we can't. And almost immediately after that, a single shot was fired. And then a volley from the dock.
21: I don't know how many they shot. Nobody knows. Lots of them went overboard. Some jumped maybe and some fell overboard. It was terrible. And a fellow, uh, many tried to tell you that they didn't shoot anybody in the water. I know better. This other fellow, too, I wish he was alive. He's gone a long time ago. One man was swimming towards shore. He got about halfway to shore. And we run down the beach trying to see if we could find a boat to go out and help him, you know. But they got him, the bullets flying around him, and then bullets come by our way too, over by the shore. So it was no use, you couldn't do anything about it. Fellow sank and his hat was floating around it afterwards. And they claimed they'd drug that, they dragged that uh, for the bodies, never found any bodies. That's a lot of baloney. Oh man, what they wouldn't do. I'll never forget it as long as I live.
22: Those Wobblies who weren't killed or wounded
6: were arrested and charged with murder. Later, all these charges were dropped. However, the events in Everett proved to be almost a declaration of independence for organizing the loggers of the great Northwest.
8: West was cut by timber beasts. and there was a saying that you could smell them before you could hear them and you could hear them before you could see them. A shandy
22: man's life is a wearisome one, although some say
11: out like this, you'd have a big, huge bunkhouse, just pine boards, and a great big barrel stove in the middle of the room, but they had no bathhouse, no shower bath, no way much to clean up except right in the bunkhouse. And 150 men in that big barn of the
6: bunkhouse, And it was rotten food and afraid that the bindle stiffs would carry off the plates. They nailed the plates down to the table and washed them out with a hose after they got through eating. That was the only washing that they got.
21: Grub was not too good. I guess they thought the cheapest kind of grub they could get. Bunk houses, no mattresses. They had to pack their own bedrooms and that spread lice and bed bugs and various things of that kind all over the country. There was no escaping them.
11: Seven times major bones broken and seven times in the hospital. Arms broke, legs broke, ribs broke. One time I had the guts all squeezed out of my tail end. The log rolled on me. So I had that cut off in the lumbering accident in the uh, small head rig at Chamote, Oregon.
22: Wallace Waite was our walking boss And hell was to pay when he got cross He tries his best his men to kill crying to come down heavy on the old dust hill Roll, you tigers, roll Roll, you heroes, roll, let's roll all day No sugar in your pay While you're working on the Waite boys' roll away.
11: Sometimes Organizing, you'd run into a mess of trouble. Like I went into a logging camp down on the lower Columbia River. Well, I remember I was in Crown Willamette, and it could have been Deer Island now, I don't remember. But anyway, one of them, there was only about oh, six, seven wobblies in camp, or maybe ten of them. And I thought that camp needed some organizing and that goes in there. It got started one day, I was seven choker. Started to work on the rigging crew. Come in that night, somebody had stooled to the superintendent. <laughs> he came at me with a double baited axe, hollering at me, He's, Get out of here, you red, call me a wobbly bastard. <laughs> He's me clear out of camp. <laughs> and I didn't like the looks of that double baited axe, so well, I just kept going, you know. <laughs> but later we got the camp organized anyway. So it didn't make any difference. We finally got
21: him. <laughs> that may have been one of the reasons why the lumber companies were so worried about all these uh, these little uh, little people, you might say, that were out organizing. They were yeah. not paid organizers. They were not uh, professionals or anything. They were just lumberjacks.
23: They began to send out what they call job delegates. They developed that technique. A man, uh, would be given a certain number of union cards, credentials, a uh, number of constitutions, and always, but always a little red song book. A number of copies of the little red songbook would go along.
24: I met him in Dakota when the harvesting was for. A wob he was, I saw, by the button that he wore. He was talking to a bunch of sniffs in the jungles near the tracks. He said, you guys whose homes are on your backs, why don't you stick together with the Wobblies in one band and fight to change conditions for the workers in this land? When you wear that button, the Wobblies red button, and carry a red, red card. No need to hike. Boys, along this old pipe, boys, every wobbly will be your part. The boss will be leery. The slips will be cheery when we hit John Farmer hard. For he'll be affrighted when we stand united and carry a red, red card.
23: In the grain fields, we harvested every major grain that grew in North America. Wheat, oats, barley, rye. The heat was 110 to 112 to
6: 114 degrees temperature out in the sun. And you could look across the plains and see a freight train from miles away.
21: It was by the day in the early days. So much a day, it wasn't by the hour. Whether you worked eight hours or 14 hours.
23: harvest deal up to within a few days before the harvest started, we were unwanted. Uh, anytime you pass through a large city and uh, their jails were getting emptier than they wanted them to be, and they saw they saw a, a, a stiff, as we called ourselves, they saw a stiff, who's more likely to throw in there? Because who cares? See. So when they wanted, they, uh, they wanted their jails uh, filled for brutal purposes. Or if there was a county road to be built with free labor. The chain gang awaited us.
21: And we was, uh, this weekend, we was picked up. And next Monday or Tuesday, we had a trial. And we had a lawyer then days. That was when, before we quit having lawyers. On top of that building is a statue, he said. That statue represents liberty. These men deserve their liberty. Oh, he went on and on and on. I, and in the meantime, the judge fell asleep. A cuter, that was a prosecutor. We call him Cuter, you know. Woke him up. He says, $25, 30 days in jail.
22: <laughs> and we stayed there the full 30 days. I had a job once threshing wheat, worked 16 hours with hands and feet. And when the moon was shining bright, they kept me working all the night. What Moonlit night I hate to tell I accidentally slipped and fell. My pitchfork went right in between some cogwheels of that thresh
1: machine.
6: One of the IWW tactics was sabotage, which was anything from slowing down on the job to threatening violence, which they didn't practice, as a matter of fact. But it simply scared employers into thinking they did. If Freedom's Road seems rough and hard and strewn with rocks and thorns, just put your wooden shoes on pard, and you won't hurt your corns. To organize and teach, no doubt, is very good, that's true. But still, you cannot get along without the good old wooden shoe. The wooden shoe is a symbol of the Sabbath. Sabbath was the French, the French worker. When he wanted to rest, he'd throw his Sabbath in the machinery and would break it down. And that's where the word sabotage
23: came from. Now, if you want to know what a sabotage really means, it don't mean, uh, as the French used the words, a, uh, a sabot, throw a wooden shoe into the machine. Nor does it mean burning down sawmill? For what is what is the reason? What would be the sense in burning down uh, your source of employment?
6: What would it, uh, it mean?
23: The uh, conscious withdrawal of efficiency. <laughs>
11: I'd be damned if I know. They were though. They figured we was a bunch of roughnecks, you know. When they called us, "I want works and I want whiskey and all kinds of names."
6: But we wouldn't work unless we got decent treatment out of it, either. Yeah. As the old story goes, there was a little girl went to the door, and a uh, harvest hand or a wobbly was at the door begging for some work to do for something to eat. She said, "Mama." It was right during the harvest season, there's a bum at the door, and the mama said, that isn't any bum, that's a harvest worker. A month later, the harvest was over, and the same wobbly was at the door, rapping for something to eat, for something work to do. And the little girl said, "Mama, there's a harvest worker at the door. She said, that's no harvest worker, that's a bum.
22: Hallelujah, I'm a bum.
1: Hallelujah,
22: bum again. What hell can I work when there's nothing?
6: Riding a freight train is a miserable existence, but it was the only way the migratory worker could go from job to job or seeking a job. There's nothing more discouraging than to ride a boxcar eight, ten, twelve hours between one division to another division. Hungry, cold, wet, lousy, and look out across the country and see the lights in a house, the people gathered around a table. Be all wet and look at this beautiful light in the distance or close by as you roll along in a bus car, or wait for another train to pass.
23: A hey, migratory worker could ever be developed on any planet. A job, a big job, a bridges to be built. As it becomes known that this big job is going to take place, men of the various skills from the remote corners of this country will come to that job.
14: We'll leave it there, uh, part two of our history of the wobbly.
25: Tanto tiempo disfrutando De este amor nuestras almas se acercaron, tanto así que yo guardo tu sabor, como tú llevas también sabor a mí. Si negaras mi presencia en tu vivir, bastaría con abrazarte y conversar, tanta vida yo te di. Que por fuerzas llevarás sabor a mí. No pretendo ser tu dueño. No soy nada, yo no tengo vanidad en mi vida. Todo lo bueno. Soy tan pobre que otra cosa puedo dar. Pasarán más de mil años. Muchos más, yo no sé si tengamos la eternidad, pero allá tal como aquí, y en la boca llevarás sabor a mí.
14: Bora me by los lobos <coughs> is wishing you a good week and good work. <coughs> Remember if one person one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste. I'll send you home with a Mirage. <laughs>
0: Hey, kids, it's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the rhino. I'm heading down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got Slum shlemils doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck. And donate two to five dollars. On hold, hold on. What is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Ben Bow? That's not real. What is that? Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. Hold, it's nap time.
5: The year is 2023.
22: Oh, I wish that laughter had value. And the unexpected laugh was priceless. Worry not. True entertainment has brought us a savior in who's thatlive.com. Oh, finally, an escape from the apocalyptic nightmare I live in. You can go to who's thatlive.com and buy comedy tickets. And you're in a
10: raffle, I guess.
21: True, 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 true. production.
3: First Sundays of every month, join your friends from Mutiny Radio at Hotel Utah on 4th and Bryant. 5 p.m. First Sundays for free comedy. Is San Francisco getting you down? Is everything too expensive? Not first Sundays of the month at Hotel Utah for free comedy. With Mutiny Radio, incredible lineups every month with the best comedians from around the bay. Join your friends trying to keep things affordable for free comedy. First, Sundays of the Month, Hotel Utah, 4th Street.
2: Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores. 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please, reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh.
13: <laughs> happy,
10: happy hour the is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy
3: hour, the most free, Two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live (laughs) at 2781 21st Street. Come down. Be in the audience.
10: Dog-friendly.
3: Dog-friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. A dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. (laughs) Dog party at Mutiny Radio.
10: Every Friday, dog party (laughs) at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. (laughs)
3: 2781 21st Street. Happy hour, Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here in Dot SF.
9: Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest VestFest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center.
0: But not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come?
2: I really don't. Anywho.
0: Take it with the freezer's Freezer-
2: reservations on Eventbrite. Back in public schools.
3: In a tri level dual world of stand up comedy, laughter has value and the unexpected laugh is priceless who is that comedy local shows on sale now everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing True wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that <laughs> go to who is
1: for
9: upcoming shows nobody's fault but mine Said if i die and my soul be lost it's nobody's fault but mine my mother taught me how to read my mother